This is Affliction Fiction, a podcast regarding writers and artists who quite literally make their characters sick. I'm James Ewer. And I'm Jennifer Horlick. On this show, we analyze illnesses that exist in fictional works, such as TV, books, and film, and how they relate to the real world. And this week, we will be discussing the affliction Mono-Orangiosis from the Disney Channel original sitcom Wizards of Waverly Place. Now, normally the podcast discusses diseases that are fake in our world, but real in their fictitious world. However, mono-orangiosis is fake in both the real world and the fictional world of Wizards of Waverly Place. Even in a world where wizards are real, mono-orangiosis is not. So, James, why are we deliberately veering off formula in our very first episode? Well, there are two main reasons for that. First, the home field advantage. I mean, hello, Waverly Place, as in the street right here by WNYU Studios. I mean, come on. What a spiritual introduction. But also, uh, Max, the character who in the show claims to have monoorangiosis, his motives for making up the disease resemble many writers' and artists' motives for creating fictional diseases in their works. Here's how the character Max describes the condition he supposedly has on the Wizards of Waverly Place episode, Art Teacher. Justin, I need you to sign some for me. Dear Coach Gunderson, please excuse Max from P.E. He has mono-orangiosis. I've never even heard of mono-orangiosis. Yeah, well, that's because it's a very, very rare colorblindness. Oh, really? I can't see anything orange. I I can't taste orange. I can't even hear orange. In fact, I didn't hear half of what I just said. Phenomenal. So we're going to examine this disorder from three different perspectives. The first is a strictly medical-based perspective, the second is more of an artistic viewpoint, and the third is more of a moral-based approach. But first, medical considerations. How closely does monoorangiosis resemble real-world conditions? Before we look at monoorangiosis from a medical perspective, we need to understand how the human eye functions. According to the National Eye Institute, there are two types of photoreceptors in the eye, which are rods and cones. Rods are responsible for vision at low light levels, while cones are responsible for vision at higher light levels and color vision. A common misconception is that colorblindness always takes away the ability to see any color. In reality, there are many different variants of colorblindness, and most of them only affect the ability to see some colors rather than all colors. This is because there are three different types of cones in the eye. One sensitive to the color red, one sensitive to the color blue, and one sensitive to the color green. And complete colorblindness only occurs if two or more of these three types of cones aren't working. The variants of colorblindness that most closely resemble monoorangiosis are protonomaly and protonopia. These are both forms of colorblindness that involve damage to just the red cones. Protonomaly results from an irregularity in the photopigment of the red cones. It makes orange look more like green, but it does the same thing to red and yellow as well, and the variant is fairly mild whereas protonopia results from complete non-function of the red cones. It makes most shades of orange appear as yellow, but it does the same thing to yellow and green, and red appears as black. So while there are variants of colorblindness which have an effect on the color orange, there aren't any variants which exclusively impact the color orange. But it isn't just colorblindness that we have to consider. Max also says that monoorangiosis affects his ability to taste orange. This feature of the disorder isn't realistic in any way because there isn't any taste-related disorder which affects only some tastes. Even among the five different tastes, which are sweet, sour, salty, bitter, or savory, there isn't any condition which affects some tastes but not others. 
The National Institutes of Health identifies three different taste disorders. Hypogeusia, which is partial loss of the ability to taste. Agusia, which is the complete loss of the ability to taste. And dysgeusia, which is a sort of unpleasant distortion of the ability to taste. These are the maladies which most closely resemble the taste element of monoorangiosis, but none of them exclusively affect orange. And lastly, Max says that monoorangiosis affects his ability to hear the word orange, and there are two ways we can examine this aspect of the disease. The first is in regard to the ability to hear itself, and the second is in regard to the ability to process what is heard. The American Speech Language Hearing Association identifies three types of hearing loss. The first is conductive hearing loss, which is a reduction or absence of hearing caused by damage to the outer or middle ear. These are things like ear infections or punctured eardrums, and sometimes the problem is only temporary or can be fixed. The second type is sensory neural hearing loss, which involves damage to the inner ear. It refers to a problem with either the cochlea, which is the ear's actual hearing organ, or with the auditory nerve that connects the ear to the brain. And sensory neural hearing loss is almost always permanent. The final type is mixed hearing loss. This means a person is facing both conductive and sensory neural hearing loss. Tough luck. However, all of these types impact everything that is heard, not just certain sounds or words. There is no such thing as selective hearing loss, as Max claims he cannot hear anything orange. So monoorangiosis' problem with hearing orange wouldn't have anything to do with actual hearing. Instead, the problem is a bit more similar to what the Learning Disabilities Association of America refers to as auditory processing disorder. People with this condition take issue not with hearing sounds, but with processing and making sense of those sounds in the brain. For example, someone might have difficulty distinguishing between similar sounding noises or focusing on one particular sound in a noisy environment. This is a little bit more similar to what Max claims to have, because some words and sounds are understood more easily than others. However, auditory processing disorder never exclusively impacts one word while leaving all others unaffected, so the inability to hear specifically orange is still far from realistic. The hearing issues which Max experiences in monoorangiosis are issues related to language comprehension, but what's more common are disorders related to language production, such as paraphasia. Paraphasia occurs when a word or sound that a person means is different than what is actually produced. For example, a person might try to say shoe, but they accidentally say foot. Or in more severe cases, they try to say shoe, but they accidentally say something like carnival. But it isn't just a medical perspective we can use to examine monoorangiosis. We can also look at things more artistically, in terms of the creation and implementation of the disorder within the work. For instance, linguistically, monoorangiosis isn't even a correct name for the condition given its symptoms. The suffix osis means some abnormal state or condition, which sounds correct in theory, but we usually reserve that suffix for more severe physiological or pathological disorders. Variants of colorblindness use suffixes like anomaly to mean irregularity, anopia to mean some sort of defect in the eye, or opsia to mean some sort of sight deficiency. The prefix mono means one, and one orangiosis would imply that Max can only see, taste, and hear orange, not see, taste, and hear everything except orange. Just like how in monochromacy, or achromatopsia, someone affected can only see shades of gray. Fifty of them, you might say. <laughs> Of course, the name of the disease is probably only wrong for the sake of Disney Channel humor, and they could have done something a lot worse. Remember that this is the show that once named a spell Edge Bono Utusis.
Shifting into the moral side of Max's fictitious disease, we need to think about Max's motives for creating monooringosis. As we heard in the clip, he invents this disorder to be excused from P.E., but it does not work. However, he continues to portray it because he succeeds in gaining sympathy and attention from a fellow female classmate, as well as Olympian Misty May trainer and Hollywood actor Dwayne Johnson, who guest star on the show and personally come and visit Max and his family for the express purpose of hanging out with him and offering their condolences. And Jennifer always laughs at that part. Whenever I say Hollywood actor Dwayne Johnson. He's just, you know, it's it's hard to take Dwayne Johnson seriously, whose nickname is The Rock, am I right? You clearly did not know me in high school. <laughs> All of these sympathizers who guest star are important to note because Max's motives for inventing monooringosis mirror the moral dilemma that content creators face when depicting illnesses, either fictional or otherwise. Characters in film, TV, and literature make and fake illnesses in order to earn sympathy for the sake of personal gain. Max creates monooringosis in order to escape a P.E. class, and he keeps it in order to receive time and attention from local celebrities and attractive classmates. But we can see this in other examples of fiction, too. For example, in an episode of Seinfeld, Jerry is arrested for public urination in a parking garage, and in an attempt to escape the ticket, he tells the security officer that he suffers from an illness which requires that he release urine immediately. So you don't care if I die? What I care about is the sanitary condition of the parking facility. Why would I do it unless I was in mortal danger? I know it's against the law. I don't know. Because I could get uromycetosis poisoning and die, that's why. <laughs> Additionally, Dewey Finn, in the film School of Rock, wants to get his class banned on the bill for Battle of the Bands. So he tells the venue manager that the band members are from a children's hospital and they all have a terminal illness. Jeez. Yeah, and all they wanted to do before they bit the dust was play Battle of the Bands. What do they all have? It's a, uh... <clears throat> it's a rare blood disease. Stick it to demand neosis. Even in the real world, this is a tactic. Kids fake illnesses all the time in order to stay home from school, which is also known as playing hooky. James, have you ever played hooky? <laughs> yeah, kids, not college students. Anyway, similarly, by creating and depicting an illness, writers and artists receive personal gain by getting a more emotionally involved response from their audiences. So content creators ought to consider. Are they creating and depicting a condition in order to convey some sort of message or purpose? Or are they just using a tactic to evoke sympathy from their readers and viewers? One of the reasons to opt for creating an illness rather than portraying a real one is for the sake of evading this dilemma. By making their own rules for their own illnesses, creators don't have to worry about genuinely understanding and depicting someone else's disorder. This leads to another question to consider. Is it morally better for creators to make up their own disease or use a real one, which risks exploiting that disease in order to better their story for their own personal gain? Right, because on the one hand, by making a fictional illness, you don't have to thoroughly research and properly depict a real one. But on the other hand, if the disease you invent closely resembles a real one, you might be missing out on an opportune moment to give a voice to people affected by that condition. In the case of monooringosis, this is thankfully an easy question to answer. Because the plot involved a character faking an illness, it was a much better choice to have that illness be fictional. If Max had tried to get out of class and meet celebrities by claiming to have tuberculosis or something like that, the episode plot wouldn't have been humorous so much as it would have been exploiting the stories of people genuinely living with tuberculosis or some other real disease. 
So then overall, by making Mono Orangiosis so utterly ridiculous and unrealistic, and by having characters in the episode explicitly call out that Max faking an illness was morally wrong, Wizards of Waverly Place actually created and depicted an affliction in a proper and unobjectionable way. However, coming to such a definitive answer to this moral question isn't always so easy, and there is the potential for serious debate over any fake illness depicted in any fictional work. Jennifer, would you say that leaves the door open for potential future episodes? I feel like now we have more content to talk about. I may have just set up the opportunity for more episodes. Yeah, exactly. Wow, you took the words right out of my face anyway. (laughs) Right out of my face! Okay. Well, that's all we have to say for now, but what do you think? Do you have a question or contribution to today's discussion? Do you know of a fictional illness that you'd like us to talk about? Do you have personal experience with a condition similar to a fictional one which you'd like to discuss? If so, visit our Affliction Fiction podcast page at wnyunews.org and send us an email. For now, I'm James Ewer. And I'm Jennifer Horlick. Thanks for listening. And get well soon. Wizards of Waverly Place, Season 2, Episode 15, Art Teacher, was written by Todd J. Greenwald and is property of Disney ABC Domestic Television. Seinfeld, Season 3, Episode 6, The Parking Garage, was written by Larry David and is property of Sony Pictures Television. School of Rock was written by Mike White and is property of Paramount Pictures. Lover's Carvings by Bibio was written by Stephen Wilkinson and is property of Warp Records. 